Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Welcome to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One. I'm Mark Hamilton. Joining me as always is my co-host, my colleague, dare I say my friend, Mr. Mark Daly. It is Friday, January 14th, and we are now weeks away from getting to see the new cars, the 2022 revisions, the new formula. So much deliciousness as the new season approaches. But in the meantime, we've got this ugly hangover from 2021 that just does not seem to go away. But before we get to that, my friend, how the heck are you doing? I'm doing really good. You know, I'm my mind is absolutely totally blown. It feels like only yesterday I was wearing my ugly Christmas sweater and boom, here we are. It's the middle of January. It's just like, where the hell did the time go? But like you say, we are now just a weeks away from the car launches for the 2022 season. And unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, depending on your point of view, I'm assuming the ugly hangover that you're referring to from 2021 is not the ongoing saga that is the COVID-19 pandemic. I assume you're talking about that other stuff that just won't go away either. So we'll get to it in a second. But how are you doing it? Uh, you know, you seem to be in a bit of a dark corner tonight. Uh, you're looking a little bit mysterious, I must say. Yeah, it's less that I'm trying to be mysterious and more that I'm pretty <laughs> disheveled here following a, a chaotic couple of months and uh, we're, we're kind of cleaning up the mess from the flood and hopefully we can get the basement back together and I can yeah. put my office back together. And unfortunately, our our lovely, cherished family, Volkswagen Tiguan, suffered some damage in the most recent snowstorm. So we're working to get that taken care of. And I think, thankfully, the damage isn't enough that we're gonna have to go through the insurance company because I have a treasured, squeaky clean, knock on wood, 23-year driving record that I did not want to compromise. So the good news is the couple of parts that we needed, we were able to order through the dealership today. So that's good. But other than that, the family's good. Everything is good. I'm excited about the fact that the NBA season's getting heated up a little bit for uh Folks like me that are Toronto Raptors fans. Yeah, it's an awesome time of year. And uh, you know, let's not forget that we're going into an exciting part of the NFL season this weekend as well. Hockey's kind of getting there. And well, it's just a, a fun time of year to be a sports fan all around. Unless you're a Formula One fan. I mean, then you, it depends, I guess, on your point of view. If you're a Lewis fan or a Max fan, if you're a Lewis fan, you're, you're still probably <laughs> angry. And yep. boy, it you know, I, I understand why Lewis fans are upset, but... I'm you know maybe you can enlighten me um, what is the the end game of the the whole we stand with Lewis Hamilton thing because I mean they're not going to walk back this uh, th this result from this race that went on like what 6 weeks ago now I mean Max has crowned the world champion w what is the best that Lewis's fans can hope for at this time because I mean any any changes to the like the the, the race structure itself to the rules to the procedural stuff it seems kind of almost a, a hollow victory I mean we'll, we'll talk about um, Lewis and his ongoing silence in a moment, but I'm just kind of curious what the what the community's feeling. I I think that's a really great question, and to be totally honest, I 
I sympathize with the frustration. And, and let's be clear that everyone in the Formula One community, including Red Bull fans and including Max Verstappen's fans, should all be equally as frustrated due to the outcome of that race and the sequence of, of events that led to that outcome. But I, I, I'm not ultimately clear either. And to me, I'm a, I'm a big fan of Team LH. And obviously, I'm a, one of the biggest Lewis Hamilton fans in the world. Although I think my love for Formula One certainly supersedes my passion or love for any individual driver. Mm-hmm. But I think as a Formula One fan, if I compartmentalize my love for Lewis Hamilton and put that in a box, I just look at the outcome of the race. And I am absolutely not somebody who subscribes to or believes that there's a grand master conspiracy here. I'm strongly of the mindset that this was a human error. I think Michael Massey was suffering under a gravity of weight and stress that none of us could probably ever, ever experience or relate to. But I, I agree with your question or your point that no outcome here is going to be what the team LH audience wants, which mm-hmm. I think is that the title is going to be reversed or that the title is going to be stripped from Max or that Lewis is going to be awarded the title. And knowing that, knowing that never would Liberty or the FIA ultimately concede to mismanagement of the race that resulted in that illegitimate title that had to be reversed. I don't know what the expectation is. Is it that they're simply out or, and again, I'm not arguing that it's just team LH, but those that are so vocal about this, is it that they're out for blood or is it that we as a community simply want an acknowledgement of the fact that the race was in fact mismanaged and that there was an error and that there are going to be some structural changes that will ultimately ensure that we don't experience something like this again. And you make a great point that on December 15th, the FIA acknowledged that there was going to be an investigation and simultaneously they acknowledged that the circumstances surrounding the outcome of the race were tarnishing, quote unquote, tarnishing the championship. And unfortunately at the time, they seemed to acknowledge that the issue and the frustration and the noise was really just driven by the fact that we, the fans, misunderstood the rules. But no matter what way you look at the outcome of the race, the rules weren't followed in two very tactical ways. And I agree that the outcome here is never going to be a reversal of the championship. So what is it that they, and I'm talking about the community at large, and I really should say we, what is the desired outcome? Is it that Michael Massey loses his job? Is Mm -hmm. it that that role is replaced by multiple positions? Is it that there's a significant restructuring? I don't know. But This week, yesterday, in fact, we finally got an update from the FIA, and the update was effectively that, hey, you know what, in the last month, we really haven't done a lot, but (laughs) we promised to start investigating now. And and to that, I don't know what the investigation's going to be. What what do you need to investigate? Yeah. Well, you know, the thing is that that they haven't done anything since that race happened, except maybe some post-race discussions in the hours and days afterwards. I, I just find it astonishing. I mean, that there, there's been so much criticism leveled at them, so much vitriol, and th- that they, they, they said they're going to do this investigation into the, the whole restart and the way that that race wrapped up. And here we are four weeks later, and they're only just announcing that this thing is going to proceed. It's just like, well, what's going on? Like, why is it taking so long? I mean... It, maybe it's a little bit uh, overdramatic to say that the the sport is in crisis, but it's about as close to a, a crisis as they can have. And I mean, I have to be a, a little bit sympathetic to the new FIA president, Mohammed Ben Suleim, who basically comes in and in- inherits this hot mess as the, the very first thing he has to deal with when he comes into office. But 
it's it's astounding to me that not only have they taken so long to get this thing up and running, but they're not going to release their their findings on this for for many many weeks to come. I completely agree with everything you said. And, you know, we talked about this on the Spaces chat tonight, and we had some really great perspectives and some really great conversation uh, about this exact subject matter. And I shared some thoughts that really, if the FIA is executing at an optimal level, if it's executing at its contractual SLA, we should never have to talk about the FIA. It's it's really unfortunate that throughout the 2021 campaign, and again, I'm not targeting this, I'm, I'm not trying to dehumanize any specific individual, mm-hmm. but we should be talking about the racing. We should be talking about engine suppliers. We should be talking about drivers and development and sponsors, all the fun parts of the sport. But so much of 2021, we were sitting here talking about FIA decisions and stewarding decisions. We were talking about the fact that they classified a race in Spa that took place after effectively two laps behind a safety car and there was no actual competitive lap completed that so much of this championship was based around FIA conversation. And it it just ultimately it it peaked by a championship that was ultimately dictated by the decision made by the race director that ultimately wasn't compliant with the rule book that should have been administered in that moment. And again, I don't want to take anything away from Max. Max was fantastic this year. He deserves the championship. I don't want to take that away from him. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, while I don't believe there was a grand conspiracy to manipulate the outcome of this race, I think the FIA needs to and, and here's the other funny thing too, and I, and, and I was listening to Nick Knowles on the Motormouth podcast earlier today. He made a great point too that the FIA is investigating the FIA. I'm not sure necessarily what the outcome is going to be. And again, I'm getting worked up because this topic gets me a little bit emotional. <laughs> but I just I sense there's this degree of arrogance within the FIA. There's some institutional arrogance within the FIA, certainly within Formula One, but absolutely within the FIA. And I'm hoping that the new leadership will change that. And maybe we haven't necessarily seen that that's going to be the case, but I desperately hope that there's going to be a degree of humility that there's could be an acknowledgement here that, Hey, look, ultimately we need to change the structure. The race director has too much on his plate. We're going to split that into multiple rules. We're now going to go to fully paid, fully trained, full-time stewards. We need some structural change as an outcome of this. And maybe that would be enough to satisfy Mercedes. Maybe that would be enough to satisfy Lewis Hamilton, and maybe that would be enough to satisfy the fans. But the timing, the the lack of work that's been done is is alarming. And the other mm-hmm. point that I made this week on Twitter as well is I was expecting, and I think a lot of the community was expecting, that whatever this investigation is, it should have been completed. You bring in a couple of external lawyers, you look at the rule book, you look at how the rules were applied in the final laps of that race, you acknowledge that they weren't executed correctly, and then the FAA can come back and acknowledge that there was mishandling of the race, and you can list all the things that you're going to do to change the structure of race management so it doesn't happen again. But here we are, it's now Friday, January 14th, the investigation for all intents and purposes hasn't begun, it won't be finished now until well into winter testing. So during a period where we should all be talking about all the new car unveils, drivers getting ready for the season, talking about the early days of winter testing, this shadow is going to be over hanging over the whole thing. So 
Liberty, like if Liberty's not upset at the FIA at this point, they absolutely should be upset because all of the shine that Formula One should have going into a new campaign is being demolished because it's going to be overshadowed by this investigation that, in mm-hmm. my opinion, should have been finished by now. And I get that there was a 100%. change and I get that it was a holiday, man. But you work in business, as do I. Business doesn't stop because it's a holiday. You get calls late on a Saturday night, early on a Sunday morning. You have to drop everything you're doing and respond to a client's needs. The FIA Liberty should have been the same here. So again, that's my rant. I think that's my frustration. I think I've spelled it out pretty well. But this is, as Meg said on the Spaces Chat tonight, this is absolutely a textbook case of a nightmare PR campaign mm-hmm. by both the FIA and Liberty. Well, the thing, I mean, that that's a great point. I think that's the uh, the, the perfect way to frame it. And what, what I find really sort of mind-blowing and astonishing is that they had, uh, you know, if it was a storm in a teacup uh, after Spa, that was, you know, th- that was a good indication of what uh, I, I think were fans worldwide were we we had great this, point you know, absolutely great they, point you know and, and this was just they, they kind of like rolled out the same things oh you guys just don't understand the like the procedures and the rules and everything like that but everybody was uh, you know really upset you know we, we have this farcical race that was two laps behind the safety car whatever it was and they award these half points and all this ridiculousness and we know why they didn't run the race it was too dangerous to do do so so we do this you know this whole mess. But I mean, the community uh, around the world was up in arms after that one. And it seems it's just, they, they kind of just, uh, you know, kind of tidied it up as best they could yeah, and, yeah. and moved on. And then, you know, fast forward a couple of months later, you have this hugely controversial incident that only decided the outcome of a race. It out decided the outcome of a world championship. And here they are again, say, well, you know, there, there isn't really too many problems. Is you guys don't really understand how the rules work and things. Well, you know, fine. Well then, then educate us. Be, be transparent about it. Yes, exactly. Yeah, and, you know, I completely agree. But the thing is, like, like you say, I mean, they, they've dragged their heels now for, for four to six weeks. We thought this investigation was already underway, that something was happening and nothing has happened. And it's going to go on for another six to eight weeks, whatever it is. And that just uh, absolutely blows my mind. And again, you made a great point just uh, in your rant there that it's the FIA investigating <laughs> the FIA. <laughs> and it's it's just like, uh, you know, I mean, it's like dirty cops investigating dirty cops not that you know well i I mean i I don't want to get like too you know insinuate anything too nefarious i mean dirty cops investigating uh, dirty cops would be funny if it was an episode of brooklyn 99 or something like that but (laughs) (laughs) you know it just does not make sense in the you know there's an obvious conflict of interest there's the whole issue of transparency and regardless what they say at the end of it i mean a lot of people are going to be well you know this is this was your own internal thing is it's why are you you know in in such a mega important benchmark moment why is it taking so long why are you doing it internally why is somebody not coming in from the outside i i just don't really think they grasp the the gravity of the situation and just the implications that uh, that that it really has. So it, it just uh, I, I find it really astonishing on so many different levels. It, it really does. It blows my mind. All of this goes back to what I commented on a couple of minutes ago, the sense that there's some institutional arrogance with the FIA. And yeah. I'll, I'll be fair. That was something that a friend of the show, Randy, had mentioned on the Spaces chat tonight. And I, I'm all I'm all for it, that sense. And the sense is almost that the FIA and Liberty acknowledged that there were some frustrated, angry fans in the days and hours and minutes immediately 
following the outcome of that race. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's, there's this arrogance that, hey, we can just ignore this because it's going to go away. And we can ignore it because it's just the fans. We can ignore it because it's an angry grassroots movement and they're going to get over it and they're going to move past it, to your point, just like they did with Spa. And this is this is where the second layer to all of this is. And mm-hmm. Nick Knowles on the Motormouth podcast today teed it up perfectly that the entire Formula One media institution for the past four weeks has been silent, Mm. absolutely silent. So you've got the community of F1 enthusiasts and fans absolutely at arms, furious, frustrated, angry. There are people canceling their F1 TV pro apps, and there's people that are questioning the legitimacy of this as a true championship. Is this a championship or is this a pantomime? This is... This is crazy. But meanwhile, the F1 media, and I know we've got to get to a break and I know you're watching the <laughs> clock, but but the entire F1 community has had this upswell of frustration and emotion and they've been driving this message. But the media, largely the media that is connected to Liberty financially or indirectly connected to Liberty financially mm-hmm. have been overwhelmingly quiet. And really only in the last couple of days have some of those folks, particularly the folks at Sky Sports, and we'll talk about this after the break, have they started to maybe break their silence and speak more honestly and openly? Because we've talked about this for years, my friend, that the F1 media is an institution that is embedded within Liberty because they're either paid directly by Liberty or they're paid indirectly by Liberty Mm -hmm. and they do not want to lose their all access pass. So for a month, it's been this groundswell of frustration from fans, this largely absence of voice from the media. And then the FIA and Liberty have been on radio silence until today where they acknowledge like, yeah, we're going to start working on this thing soon because maybe they finally acknowledge (laughs) that this groundswell of frustration (laughs) isn't going anywhere. Yeah, maybe that's what it's going to take. Anyways, we'll keep talking about this happy subject in just a moment after we take a short break (laughs) for a word from our sponsors. Sorry, everyone. All good. Uh, Don't go away. We'll be right back. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. All right, well, welcome back to the show. And if you are looking for more discussion on Abu Dhabi Gate, Safety Car Gate, whatever you want to call it, Safety Gar, Safety Car, I'm just uh, <laughs> starting to lose uh, control of my pronunciation here. But 
Yeah, Mark, I, I really don't know what to to do with this one. Uh, you know, from from here, like I say, I I'm astonished it's taken this long. Uh, for for them to get going, but you know the the thing that I find interesting is that Lewis is now kind of on the fence as to whether or not he wants to come back, and there there's a lot of different uh, stories out there. I know that Alan Prost, uh, you know the former world cha- champion, multiple world champion, uh, said that Lewis has as many ra- reasons to go as he does uh, to stay. But af- you know, I know. Lewis is upset. I know that Mercedes is upset, but I mean, Lewis has always been so good with his fans and I just can't for the life of me see Lewis walking away now, just uh, knowing that he has the support of so many people and the, the fact that Lewis is just such a competitor. I mean, it would have to be like one shocking bombshell of report or or something, which we know it's not going to be. But uh, I, I just really struggle to see Lewis walking away, even if he's uh, disillusioned. You know, I, I think he's probably doing the right thing, taking some space and time away, take his off-season, do his training, whatever, whatever he needs to do. But this is one I'm having a lot of, uh, you know, I, I'm struggling to reconcile this one. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And I think we should probably reflect back on and acknowledge the absolute grace with which Lewis accepted defeat at Abu Dhabi and the fact that he celebrated and he acknowledged he acknowledged Max and I think that was great to see but since that time he's vanished for somebody that has typically been so active and visible on social media yeah. he has gone off the face of the planet and Andrew Benson from the BBC and I'll give him credit as well he he's dropped a couple of really great pieces in the course of the last week that are really hitting at the heart of the FIA and and Liberty but he'd written an article that indicated that hey Lewis is waiting until the outcome of the report he is not going to resurface on social media in a paddock until the FIA has released this report and I think this goes back to your initial question off the top is what could he, what could Mercedes be looking for in this report that's going to break his silence? Is it going to be a major structural change? And then he can come back knowing that, hey, the FIA has openly acknowledged that that race was mismanaged and Mm -hmm. instituted some sufficient changes. I'm not sure necessarily what he's waiting to see, but if they come back and there's no acknowledgement or if there's only minor acknowledgement, what what does he do at that point for the for the longest time? And I think you and I talked about this off the air. Like, let's be honest, he's got a two year deal right now. He signed through the end of twenty twenty three. Although we know he could opt out and walk away at any time. And sure, Mercedes yeah. Would yeah. give him the most expensive watch known to man. But he's due to make fifty million dollars in each of the next two seasons, so a hundred million dollars combined, not including all the money that he would make directly or indirectly from sponsors. Like he he could potentially walk away from one hundred fifty million dollars. And I think. There was a point where I believe that that would be too much for him. But somebody made a comment to me the other day about the fact that you got to look at it through Lewis's perspective. Like I live and I shouldn't be acknowledging this on the air, but we have a beautiful home and a new car and we have a warm bed and food in the fridge, but we also live paycheck to paycheck. And Mm -hmm. if I lost my job and I had no income for a month, we're in big trouble. Lewis doesn't have to work and his grandchildren's 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 would never have to work because if he and his family manage the money that he's already earned, he has financial security for generations to come. That $100 million, while that is exceptionally rich for us, that may mean nothing to Lewis because he could also earn significant amounts of money doing other things. Maybe this is opportunity while he's young to to compete in some other motorsports discipline or to pursue music or acting. There's other things he could do. But having said all of that, I agree with you completely in the sense that I don't think, regardless of the outcome of the investigation, unless the investigation is appallingly pro-FIA, 
FIA and doesn't pin any acknowledgement of blame on the FIA or Michael Massey or the stewards, I think he's going to come back because I don't think he's somebody to walk away from a challenge. And I don't think that this is how he necessarily wants for his career to end, that he's at his absolute peak, despite the fact that he didn't win a championship this year, he's at his absolute peak and he's on the cusp of winning number eight. And I think the legions and millions of Lewis fans around the world would be devastated. And while he owes nothing to them, I don't think he's going to leave them high and dry, but I'm not Lewis. I Mm -hmm. can't speak for him, but I just, unless the outcome of that of that investigation is exceedingly pro FIA and acknowledges little to no blame. I I think he's going to be back. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. And you know, just kind of going back to what you were saying just now about those uh, some of these articles written by uh, the BBC's Andrew Benson. I'm looking at them, one of them right now, and there's a picture of Lewis and Max talking after uh, Abu Dhabi, and the, uh, the 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 looks on their faces really say it all. I mean. Lewis just looks completely deflated. Max looks kind of, um, I I wouldn't say grim, but you can kind of tell there's an acknowledgement on his uh, face that that, that I won something that was extremely beneficial. I mean, let's face it. Max won that race fair and square on the track. However, the circumstances that put him into that position to win it fair and square on the track is the whole meat of the conversation, right? Yes, it is. And, 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 and that's the thing. And and that's where it's, it's going to be. I mean, there's going to be this this eternal conversation now that Max's first world championship, if this is the, the one and only that he ever wins or the first of many, whatever – We'll always have an asterisk beside it uh, for for many many people, and then for for Lewis is going to be an asterisk beside the year twenty twenty one is the one that said that that got away, and 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 that's the thing, right? Is that this has to be a thorough, transparent, completely open and unbiased investigation. And, uh, you know, I, 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 I'm skeptical. I, I really wish I, I could say uh, otherwise, but I, I, I'm skeptical that we're, we're not going to get something that's unbiased. I, I don't think we're going to get something that is, uh, you know, completely open and transparent. And, and I think that's where all the frustration lies uh, with, with many, many people. And I mean, I, I think that even if you're the, the most hardcore Max Verstappen fan, at some level, the situation has to be troublesome to you. That's not the fact that that Max won, because like I say, he won fair and square on the track, but it's the circumstances that put him in that position to win that race when it looked that, I mean, Lewis was what, 12, 13, 18 seconds ahead, whatever it was when, when, when Nikki went into the wall there. So, you know, it, it's just, I think that there's just too many fundamental troubling questions that, you know, regardless who you're cheering for, it should bother you on some level as a Formula One fan. There's a couple of good quotes here from a panel that Sky Sports did a couple of days ago, and I read here from Johnny Herbert. He believes that the decision-making was totally wrong and that Massey's calls have damaged the sport. Says Johnny Herbert, the position that he's in, Michael Massey, you've got to have trust. I think that trust has completely and utterly evaporated, said the three-time Grand Prix winner. And he continues, the problem is, who do you replace him with? Because experience is going to be very, very important for who slots into that position. Michael was very fortunate working underneath Charlie Whiting and Mm -hmm. learned a lot of things from that point of view. Is there anyone who stands out for me to replace him? No. And that is the conundrum. And now Martin Brundle, he says here, and I quote, Michael Massey in brackets might be the sacrificial lamb. 
He says, what's really important here for the FIA and for Formula One that this is not swept under the carpet? And I'll just pause here and say, that's the perception of what's been happening for the last month, that this institutional arrogance has allowed them to largely ignore this issue for four weeks. What's really important here for the FIA and for Formula One that this is not swept under the carpet and just left for a few weeks and then overtaken by the new 2022 cars and the tests and what have you. We need to understand what happened and why it won't happen again. We need to reassure the fans that what they are seeing is for real, genuine, and that they are giving up their free time to watch something that is genuine competition. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, there's some interesting uh, quotes there as well. You know, it's it's when you hear you know, people that have been around the sport, people that have raced in Formula One, and, and they say things like that. And, you know, that really is, I think, the really nicely encapsulated is the erosion of trust. And then, like, like we were saying, to the open, the openness and the transparency of the, the, the whole investigation. But, you know, what else is interesting, too, is that there's also been some reports on the BBC that apparently Mercedes, even though they're denying these reports, withdrew their appeal after Abu Dhabi if, uh, you know, that uh, two of high-level uh, FIA officials would be sacked. I mean, one of them would obviously be uh, Michael Massey, and the other one, whereabouts is it uh, in my notes here? Oh, um, FIA head of single-seater technical matters, Nicholas uh, uh, Tombazis would uh, no longer be in their position for 2022. So they're denying that this is, um, you know, th- this is the case. But again, if not, uh, let's hear some uh, transparency. I mean, if it comes out in the weeks ahead that these two guys actually end up losing their jobs and get replaced with whoever, you know, that would be... Uh, that would be another eye-raising moment, right? And uh, again, I think, was, was it Johnny Herbert that said, well, you know, if you sack Massey, who worked under Charlie Whiting, who was the technical director for decades, who is that next, uh, you know, qualified person? And then it kind of goes back to this conversation that we've been having here on the show for literally months is just the fact that they don't have these full-time qualified uh you know, high level um, people to to um, basically officiate the 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 sport. And I'm not going to take away anything from the marshals at trackside that do all the hard work that are there to make sure that these races go off. I but, completely agree. I you completely know, agree. It, it, it's the people at race control that you know. It just um, there, there's got to be a, a better solution to it. But as much as people are are up in arms, and you know, I, I can understand the calls for Massey to be sacked to to be thrown out on his butt and replaced for somebody else. But uh, again, I mean, if that's the case, who do they replace him with? I mean, if, if that's, you know, what they decide that they need to do, then fine, then that's what needs to happen. But they, you know, it, it's who do they replace him with? They have to have somebody there. I mean, you know, if you're not fit to do the job, then you shouldn't be there. But, you know, I guess it's a, what is the lesser of two evils? There was an interesting comment in the FIA statement that was released on January 12th. And I'll read the whole statement just because it helps to summarize and maybe sum up this entire conversation before we move on to less depressing and less frustrating subjects. But says the FIA, following the decision of the World Motorsport Council in Paris on 15th of December 2021, the FIA administration under the leadership of their new president has started the detailed analysis of the events of the last Formula One Abu Dhabi Grand Prix. The FIA president launched a consultation with all F1 teams on various issues, including this one. On January 19th, an item on the agenda of the Sporting Advisory Committee will be dedicated to the use of the safety car. The following stage will be shared discussion with all F1 drivers. The outcome of the detailed analysis will be presented to the F1 Commission in February, and final decisions will be announced at the World Motorsports Council in Bahrain 
on 18th of March. And then finally, and this is, this might be the one statement that Maybe it maybe provokes some sense of optimism, but it says the FIA president has asked Secretary General Sport and recently appointed single-seater director Peter Bayer for proposals to review and optimize the organization of the FIA F1 structure for 2022 <clears throat> season. So maybe within everything they said today, which is, hey, we haven't really done anything yet, but we're planning to do some stuff and maybe share some results in the middle of March. Maybe there's an acknowledgement here that they recognize that the FIA and the way that the sport is officiated and managed, that entire F1 FIA structure needs to be revised for 2022. And maybe that is the outcome that would satisfy the fans like myself and would satisfy Lewis fans. It would satisfy the community at large because that would prove to everybody that this isn't a pantomime, that this isn't the WWE, that this is genuine competition and we're not wasting our emotional strength or our money. Yeah, exactly. Anyways, Mark, let's take another break. And when we come back, um, can we move on? Or there's still things we need to uh, to talk about on this no, one? No, please, please, let's move on. Okay, we'll do that. So let's take a quick break and we'll be back in just a moment. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. All right, and welcome back to the show. And uh, well, this is an interesting one. We wanted to move on to something uh, a little bit more cheerful. But uh, Ross Braun, uh, the technical director of uh, motorsport uh, for uh, Formula One, said he admitted there were moans and groans from the team when the uh, 2022 regulations uh, were drawn up. And uh, this one is uh, kind of interesting. Anyways, he told uh, the New York Times in a recent interview, quote, when the teams first saw the regulations, there were moans and groans about the fact we had taken so much scope away from them. But as they explore them, they realize that there was still plenty of potential, end quote. So what do you make of that one? Yeah, so it's it's funny because there was actually, I think, I'm trying to remember, was it Deckel Spotter? I think it was Deckel Spotter mm. on Twitter, but they had acknowledged earlier so. this week that going forward from 2022 onwards, all of the teams in Formula One are going to use spec tires, which means that all of the teams will be required to buy that part, sorry, not tires, all of the teams will be required to buy spec wheels from BBS. That BBS, like Pirelli, BBS will be the official wheel supplier for Formula One. And that got me thinking, boy, it's crazy that we lived in a world until a month ago where the teams weren't required to use spec wheels. Like we talk about Formula One being this really lavish, rich series. And one of the things that drives a distinction between Formula One and say Indy is that it's a highly, highly technical series and teams, designers, engineers have massive scope and massive creative license when it comes to designing parts for the cars. The formula, as you could say, has been very loose and loosely defined by design because we wanted to see as much innovation as possible. But it really struck me as crazy that as much as I'm a fan of that philosophy, it was crazy that we didn't live in a world where teams were rocking spec wheels, that teams were sourcing or developing or building their own wheels. So 
that was an interesting point to me. But I get where I get where the teams would have been coming here. That you have entire teams and staff and FTE whose entire role for years or decades has been about innovation and mm-hmm. scope and creative license. And you took a lot of that away from teams. And I think the teams and the staff were probably very, very worried about what that would mean for them. Again, F1's not a spec series. It's far from it. It's nowhere near where Indy is in terms of spec parts, usage, and standardization, et cetera. But I think what the teams discovered quite quickly was that, ha, maybe there's more scope here and maybe there's more room for creative license than we expected. And I think as they started working these cars and getting them into the simulator and getting them into the wind tunnel, they realized that, hey, we have more room to innovate here than maybe we expected. And that's uh, the, the the real fascinating thing is that uh, you you have all these uh, you know ten unique teams in Formula One. They've got this uh, brand new slate of rules and regulations to to work with, and that's the the, the big question. I mean, I think that it was maybe emphasized even more last summer when Liberty had that um, that prototype launch. When was it? Was back in uh, the the middle of the summer, I think it was. This is this is potentially what a twenty twenty two Formula One car can look like. And I couldn't help but thinking, is this what a Mercedes is going to look like? Is this what a Ferrari is going to look like? Is this going to be what a Red Bull looks like in 2022? And if so, or if not, if uh, the the Mercedes looks different, is the Red Bull going to look different from the Mercedes? So I think it's going to be very, very interesting to see how they come to their own, you know, I guess, final design through their own interpretation of the regulations for, for 2022. Because I mean... I mean, there are so many principles and fundamentals that are just the same in, uh, you know, aerodynamics and mechanics and, and all the, the, the cool things that go into designing a Formula One car. And it'll just be interesting to see how they apply these new rules and just the basic fundamentals and see how how the cars, how similar or dissimilar they look. I'd heard a comment or a statement on the Shift F1 podcast a couple of years ago, and it talked about the fact that in Formula One, the engineers and the designers can come to wildly different conclusions. So we have to design a front wing. But if you have three teams and a really, really generous formula, they could come to wildly different conclusions about what that wing is going to look like in the new world they won't have as much freedom. So the conclusions that these individual designers and teams and engineers will come to will come to conclusions that are closer to each other than we've seen before and i think that's where maybe the frustration or the friction or the unhappiness was originally but i have a question for you because you brought up that demo car that f1 that liberty had trotted out to a lot of races starting probably mid-season last year i think they had it austin and i think most of the races after that Mm -hmm. when you see that car and and you try in your mind to project that onto a racetrack and you try to project liveries onto it what are what are your senses like are you excited about this are you a little bit disappointed like what what are your emotional thoughts when you see that car well, I'm I'm excited to see these uh, cars on the track uh, for sure. But I, I I must admit, when I first saw it, I was a little bit uh, underwhelmed. I, I I don't know why. Maybe just uh, the, the the fact that it was a generic sort of uh, interpretation by the FIA. It didn't have Mercedes branding. It didn't have the scarlet red of the Ferrari. It didn't have that really bland and disappointing Red Bull generic paint job we see each and every year. But you know what I mean. So I I mean maybe perhaps I let my I, I was biased. To just uh, due to that fact that it wasn't an actual launch by one of the teams. But 
at the same time, I, I found myself looking at the different you know, components of the car that was there, like the interpretation of what the front and rear wings would look like, the side pods, and just the overall look of the car and try not to get too distracted of the, the, the glossy paint job that they threw on it and the fact that it wasn't a Merc, it wasn't a Ferrari and all those uh, different things there. But I, I'm just excited to see whoever's car comes out first. And I think Nigevelli just uh, put something in the chat and uh, he says, uh, who's debuting the car first? I bet it's Williams. And I think that's a really good, uh, good bet that uh, it would be Williams or one of those teams. I think somebody's going to try and uh, try and make a splash. And I wouldn't be surprised if it was Williams or perhaps one of the smaller teams that wants a bit of bit of PR if they're ready to uh, to do it. But I, I can't wait to see them come out, and I, I can't wait to see all these comparisons because you know somebody's going to Photoshop them all and compare the, the the McLaren to this and the Ferrari to that and the Mercedes compared to the Red Bull, etc. And I think it's really really exciting, even before these cars take to the track and they light them up for the first time. Yeah, definitely. I, I have to admit that since last summer, <clears throat> I, I've spent an awful lot of time looking at those photos. And <laughs> Same. I spent an awful lot of time trying to convince myself that this was a good thing. And I think one of the things that I struggled with was, you know what, I get it. It's going to be a simplified formula. There's going to be far less creative license and design. They're going to spend a lot less money in these cars. There's going to be a lot less innovation. It's not going to be a spec series, but it's going to be much closer than we've seen before. Yeah. And I think the other thing that I really struggled with is I look at these cars and everything that we were hearing from the media was that these cars were going to be up to five seconds a lap slower. Now, we'll probably never notice that on TV. And again, mm -hmm. the whole impetus for these new simplified cars is we want to be able to make the cost cap effective. Um, and you can't, you can't have an effective cost cap unless you have a simplified formula. But Furthermore, they wanted to make for better racing by reducing a lot of that dirty air. So these cars have been engineered and designed so that there's less dirty air. But now what we're hearing more and more is, hey, these cars might just be two seconds a lot slower. And now we're hearing, hey, these cars might actually be the same speed in a lap. Like they might not as be fa as fast in the corner, but they might be faster in the straights. And ultimately we might see lap times next year that are pretty darn close to what we saw this year. And a lot of Great people point. like myself were saying that, yeah. hey, we're living in the golden age of F1. We're never going to see cars as fast as these because we're going to shed so much of the innovation. We're going to lose barge boards. We're going to lose this. We're going to lose that. But all of a sudden, the speculation is, hey, maybe these cars are just as quick. So does it even matter if that, if they're significantly more simplified because bring back the groove tires. Cars. No, 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 no. <laughs> they absolutely do not bring back the groove tires, but maybe it's okay because if the cars are going to be as fast as they were, or even just close to as fast as they were, and there is some competitive balance because teams can operate on more of an even playing field. Mm -hmm. And I hate to be super cliche, but Maybe that's an okay thing. And just to go back to those groove tires, the groove <laughs> tires no. were an effort once once by the FIA because the cars were getting too fast in the corners. So the FIA, to try to slow them down, introduced mandatory use of groove tires because it reduced the contact patch on the road. So the teams, they took advantage of the fact that there was really loose aero formula and they created the most crazy aero designs you can ever imagine to overcome the lack of mechanical grip on the tires. And of course, then the FIA is like, well, 
well, this kind of blew up on her face. Let's go back to slick tires and simplify the aero regs. But I'm more excited now than I was before. And I just cannot wait to see these cars in the flesh. Yeah, same. I, I mean, I was really encouraged to uh, say five, six years ago, I guess in 2016, when they came out with the the, the modifications. And, yeah, for the 2017 cars. And when they yeah. were saying that time that uh, I think it was um, at Barcelona, for example, that they say going through some of the corners that they'd be up to 30 to 35 kilometers an hour faster through the corners from 16 to 17. I mean, that is that is a huge increase. And I, I think by and large, the changes that they introduced in 17 have worked. Okay, we're, we're not seeing wheel-to-wheel racing and overtakes on every corner, but it was it was a much an improvement of what we'd seen before. So I, I, th- I think that these cars, as impressive as, as impressive as they've been over the past uh, several years, they're kind of like right in that middle spot there. I mean, and we had, you know, let's be fair, we had, you know, many races where there was not much action on the track at all. Uh, but I don't think they were a, com- a complete failure, but I mean, uh, when it comes to the competitive racing either, but it really does uh, have everybody, I think, excited to see the the, the prospect of closer and uh, closer racing and more overtakes. And uh, Pratik in the, uh, the live chat says, uh, the new regs is about closer racing, so we'll hold out the opinion. But if that goal is not achieved until 2025, then we'll have to question the new regulations. And yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, if it, t- if it doesn't pan out and it shows that... That they they have to make some modifications to that, and they tweak it, and it's still not working. Then it'll be a big question. Well, you know, you spent all this time and money at this uh, this working group to to come up with a better formula, and you know the the racing isn't as close as anybody expected or wanted. Now, where does that lie? Is it in the the the, the regulations that was pull, uh, put out, or is it just an in interpretation by the teams? But then, if you have ten Formula One teams and they all come up in the same you know basic uh, end endpoints, then I think you'd be pointing some finger at the people that uh, that issued the regulations but let's hope that we don't get there right yeah 100 percent. i just want to be clear as well that <clears throat> 2025 i i think what he means by that is the new engine new engines yeah coming in, yeah which yeah that the new engine formula isn't about competitive balance right it's going to be a it's going to be a simplified formula engine formula or engine formula because of course we're going to shed the mguh and there's going to be increased electrification but that's less about competitive balance the aero design is all about competitive balance so i wouldn't expect to see increased competitive balance because of the introduction of the new power unit in fact we could see a year in 2022 where it's awfully lopsided again simply because it could take some time for these teams to figure out the aero regulations Mm -hmm. one team might get it right but the other comment as well is I think the real sign that the aero regs are working is when the Formula One body drops DRS. Like DRS was a tool that was introduced pre-hybrid era to make up for the fact that the cars created too much dirty air. It's a a trick. It's a gimmick. Let's Mm -hmm. be completely honest. And I think the sign that the new aero regs work is that they don't need that trick. They don't need that gimmick. And there was a lot of questions about, hey, are we going to carry it over to 2022? And I think Ross Braun had commented that, hey, we don't know yet what the aero regs are going to result in. We don't know what the product's going to be. We're going to keep DRS for a little bit longer just to make sure that we can dial in these aero regs. And hey, they might have to tweak the design. They might have to tweak the formula a little bit going into 2023 because maybe what we end up with is something that's not as competitive as we expected it to be. And let's be honest, 
This is not the first time Formula One has introduced entirely new aero regs mm-hmm. to increase competitive balance and to increase overtaking. That is the that is the entire storybook, the entire history book of Formula One over the last twenty years is finding ways to reduce dirty <laughs> it's, air. It's this been their holy new. grail. Yeah, exactly right. Yep. I mean, they they've tried many times to varying amounts of success or failure. And uh, until we see these cars on the track and actually racing each other wheel to wheel, uh, it's it's going to be uh, that that question is going to remain open, at least for the next uh, couple of months. I mean, l- let's be honest. I mean, as, as awesome as it's going to be to see these cars in the track or sorry, on the track of Bahrain in, a, in what, about four weeks from now, five weeks, whatever it is, it's it's, it's not going to be a true matchup because Mercedes might be racing in one trim. Red Bull might be carrying more fuel. You know, they might be racing or the driving sandbagging, the sandbagging, different tire compounds. I mean, yeah, it's not yeah. till we get to the very first race and uh, they, they go out there and and really put the pedal to the metal and uh, go out there and qualifying and uh, really go up uh, against each other head to head it's going to be an open <laughs> open question there's going to be a lot of eyes on uh, on everybody uh, for sure that uh, that first weekend and you know, let's uh, let's hope that they uh, get it right, and let's hope that we get it right. But uh, we get another chance, and we're going to do so in just a moment. We're going to take another break, and we'll be back in just a moment. So don't go away. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over thirty thousand mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over six hundred dollars each week. You can also save up to one dollar off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right. Well, welcome back to the program, guys. And uh, yeah, it's, well, Friday. Happy Friday. Happy weekend. It's, uh, the week has gone so fast, man. I just uh, can't uh, believe it. Like I was saying at the top of the show, I can't believe we're already in the middle of January. Wow. Uh, another weekend. But hey, you know, that old song, was it Everybody's Working for the Weekend? It sure feels like that. And uh, Friday, definitely one of the best days of the week. Not a big fan of Monday, obviously. Tuesday, Tuesday to me, man, Tuesday's a glorified Monday. You know, you're only one day closer to the weekend. I mean, Wednesday, yeah, sure, hump day, right? It's all downhill after Wednesday, but Tuesday, Monday... Definitely not a fan. And oh, wow, look at all the subs that are dropping as, uh, as I go on about this. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, let's dial the interest back in. So Audi says that they want to cause a surprise with what they do in motorsport without getting, <clears throat> excuse me, without giving away any more clues about a possible entry into F1. Oh, man, talk about the ultimate tease here. I mean, this whole Audi or Porsche and or whatever this Volkswagen group thing, this has been teasing for, for months. And this is like a, another big uh, tease from, from Audi. And I mean, I think we talked about it, was it last week or the week before that? Just from a historical context, if the VW group is going to come into Formula One, coming in under the Audi banner makes sense just because of the old ties to Auto Union way back in the day and... So who knows, but uh, guys, don't do this to me. I want an announcement. I I want a good announcement. I want to get excited that there's going to be another team in Formula One, a marquee team. But uh, whatever they're doing, they're they're not uh, tipping their hand just yet. They're obviously very good poker players at Audi HQ. That uh, they're they're not uh, well. I don't know. Do we call their bluff? (laughs) I'm a terrible (laughs) poker player, so maybe not. 
uh, for much of the back half of last year, so much of what we talked about was it was initially what if do they come in? And it wasn't even yeah. a more granular <clears throat> tactical conversation about what it would look like. It was more just, hey, what what could we do to get them to come in? What does Liberty need to do? What does the FIA need to do to entice them to come in? And ultimately, the FIA. Liberty and the teams made enough concessions in the form in the engine formula that it's reported that Volkswagen has an honest interest in coming in. And then what you and I were talking about so much is what what form is their participation going to take? Mm-hmm. Are, are they going to buy a f- team and have a works team or are they going to come in and simply be an engine supplier? But that doesn't make a ton of sense because it costs a fortune to develop an engine. And if you're doing that, why would you not want to control your own destiny and have your own factory team to put that engine in? Or maybe you do both. You have a factory team, but you also become an engine supplier because there's always going to be teams that need a new source of power unit. Now, the last couple of weeks, the rumors have been flying like crazy. So not only are you and I both eager to know, but we have to keep absorbing all these really enticing, sexy, delicious stories. <laughs> there was a heavy amount of press over the last week that, yeah. hey, Audi is looking to straight out buy a team, and that team could be McLaren. And the thought being that they could become the future power unit supplier. So going into 2026, they could start supplying that team. It could be uh, an Audi powered McLaren team. And that in doing so, Volkswagen and Audi would take over McLaren's road car division. There would be a ton of symmetry there. The Mm -hmm. McLaren road car division currently hemorrhages cash, but you could take their chassis, you could take their suspensions, you could pair it with Audi or Volkswagen sourced power units and gearboxes, and then you slot McLaren into the Volkswagen Auto Group's family of brands alongside Lamborghini and Audi and Porsche, and you have another marquee brand. Like There could be something there. But I also think, and I've been saying this for years now, that there has been rumors ever since Joelton took over Williams that Mm -hmm. they were a front. And I had always Mm. taken from that that they were a front for an individual. Now, one of my friends and a listener of the show had sent me a message the other day saying, hey, wouldn't it make a lot of sense for, wouldn't it make a lot of sense for Volkswagen to buy Williams? And my thought being like, hey, never has the Williams Mercedes relationship been worse. I don't think it's in a great place, especially as Williams was unwilling to take on Nick DeVries and ultimately chose to take on yeah, Alex Albon. And increasingly under Dalton, Williams has been trying to position itself as being truly autonomous and truly mm-hmm. independent. And again, this is purely speculation, but it's fine. And we're not being paid to do this, so we can speculate as much as we <laughs> want. But the speculation being, well, what if Dalton was a front for the Volkswagen Auto Group? They they bought the team a couple of years ago. They bought it dirt cheap right before the cusp or the upswing of Formula One's financial uh, financial fortunes that maybe they bought the team thinking, hey, this is our in if we decide to enter the sport. And if we don't, we can spin it off and sell it. But maybe there's something there. So maybe it's McLaren. Maybe it's Williams. Maybe it's both. But Randy made a really great comment on the Spaces chat today that wouldn't it be great if Volkswagen bought the Williams team, made it their factory team, kept the branding, kept the heritage, pumped a ton of money into it, and and made it this additional power. Like, we don't need Audi. We don't need Porsche. We don't need Volkswagen to pair with AlphaTauri and with with Red Bull because they're already a financial powerhouse. But wouldn't Mm -hmm. it be great if a team like 
a team like Williams could be imbued with some true financial stability and leadership. Yep. And you mentioned this to me last week when we were talking about this, that don't forget about who's running the Williams team right now. It's Jos Capito, yep. who has a decade of experience running the motorsports teams at Volkswagen. So it's almost like he was an Im implant in anticipation of this coming. So again, I don't know anything. You don't know anything. There's just tons of opportunities right now. We also know, and we talked about this last week, that the thought was that Red Bull was going to take over production and manufacturing of its own power units by next year. Mm -hmm. But now we know Honda is going to continue supplying them with power units, unbranded power units until the end of 2025. So all of a sudden, this thought that Red Bull was going to be building their own power units isn't going to happen. They're just going to continue now buying unbranded power units from Honda. So both Red Bull and AlphaTauri are going to be looking for a true engine supplier for 2026. So there's all these different ways that Volkswagen could get involved with the F1 community and probably some other surprising ones as well that we don't necessarily know about, but it's super enticing and it's super fun to talk about. Am I the only one out there that is uh, secretly hoping for an Audi Haas like mashup and they could call the T like a hybrid? <laughs> yes, like, yes. Really? You are because the only one. Yeah, really, because I, I could really go for a team that has the hybrid name of Howdy. I mean, is it just me? You know, oh, the pre <laughs> Oh, I can dad hear the joke alert. Yeah, dad, dad joke, joke alert. I can hear the groans from here, but <laughs> you know, I, I can't help it. I, I just had to, uh, to, to to say it. But yeah, you know what? I mean, joking aside, there there is a, a lot of obvious uh, connections when you talk about Yoscapito uh, and uh, all the time that he spent uh, with, with Volkswagen and just the way that they've been sniffing around and and sort of dropping these really tasty hints here and there about uh, how yeah, possibly exactly. they might come into. To, to Formula One, the whole possible McLaren thing. That's a, that, that's a bit of a mind blower, but I mean, they suffered really, really bad in the early days of the pandemic. I mean, they basically refinanced everything just to keep that operation afloat. Uh, they sold I mean, their factory. They sold the factory. Back, yeah, right? I know that it's astonishing. So, you know, that, that makes a lot of sense too, that perhaps that, that organization is, um, you know, ripe for the, well, ripe for the picking or a merger or be, you know, being taken over and run by somebody else. I mean, whatever form it takes, I mean, there are some, there, there definitely are some potentials in Formula One. And I mean, perhaps uh, they decide that none of those uh, options are for, for them and they just uh, decide to come in as a brand new team and, and do their own thing. And, and I think that's what makes this story so juicy. I think that's what makes this, uh, the story so much fun to talk about because there are so many different angles to look at and until they come out and say one way or another hey this is what we've done we've bought into this team or that team or we're doing this or doing that whatever it is it's just going to be a lot more fun to talk about yeah and we we mentioned on the spaces chat tonight as well that the unfortunate thing about everything that's going on with the fallout from abu dhabi is it's hmm. overshadowing this, which probably should be one of the dominant stories right now. And it would be, it yeah. It took you yeah. and I 45 minutes of this podcast to get to this topic, which is really cool and really fun. The only thing I would add before we move on, and I don't want to be too much of a downer, is I think we all get very <laughs> excited at the idea of a new engine supplier entering yeah. Formula One. But you got to remember as well that we just lost Honda. So really, it's addition in a sense by subtraction. So in terms True. of total manufacturers True. involved, it's kind of going to be net neutral unless Honda rejoins. And maybe that's the maybe that's a story we'll get to a little bit later. Yeah. Okay. Well, before we move on to the next uh, story in the outline here, got something for you in the live chat uh, from, from Pratik. And it says, uh, hey, Mark, did you uh, hear Valentino Rossi will be uh, racing for WRT and Fantech GT World Challenge and an Audi R8? Did you hear that? 
Oh, so I did, and I was actually going to ask if we could stick it at the end, mostly because I wanted the most. Oh, I, I should have got, <laughs> I should have got the oh. jingle ready. There but we yeah, go. and yeah. that was something that I think most people were expecting, which was he is not done with his racing career. He has extensive experience racing a, an automobile, and I think it's very cool that he's going to be partnering up with Audi. And I think the R8 is a great fit. And it also had me thinking today as well: what a stalwart. The R8 has been in the Audi lineup. Like this, this is a this is a mega machine, a mm-hmm. mega rear engine supercar that has been ultra reliable and been a staple of their lineup and a flagship of their lineup now for going on 15 years. Has it been 15 years? Wow. Yeah, you yeah, would be and- right. It's it's been on the market for a long time now. They're great cars. It's fantastic. And yep. it's probably and people talk about, you know, the Acura NSX, the Honda NSX back in 1990 talk about that being yeah. the first reliable supercar sure and i and think rightly so today even though there is an accurate nsx i kind of feel like the the spirit uh, and the the heart of the previous honda nsx was really adopted by the current acura r8 or acura <laughs> r8 the audi r8 but yep. great car great fit and i wish uh valentino rossi nothing but the best yeah, cool. I think that's a really neat story. Hey, we got a couple more minutes before we go into the final break of the evening, but let's just do this one because uh, we want to just uh, get it uh, behind us because, you know, like everybody else, I'm just so done and and tired of talking about COVID and everything like that. But anyways, um, Sky is reporting that, uh, that vaccinations are now going to be mandatory in the F1 uh, paddock, and uh, that's going to be across the board for all um, uh, F1 uh, personnel. Uh, anyways, um, th- this comes from uh, F1 uh, or Sky's F1 correspondent uh, Craig Slater. Uh, he had to say that uh, this is uh, official, and uh, he said, uh, "Quote: I can report today that it's now mandatory for all F1 personnel traveling to a Grand Prix to be fully vaccinated. That includes drivers, engineers, mechanics, those of us in the media going as well. Now, it isn't the sort of thing that you could write into employee contracts, for example. So it isn't legal." Legally binding in that sense, but it's basically the rule of thumb by which F1 is operating now. So if you're working for a team, if you want to go to the races, basically you have to be vaccinated, end quote. So... You know, there's that. So, uh, I don't really know what to, uh, you know, th- to say about that. You know, I-, I don't really like the idea of forcing and mandating things on people, but, you know, and that and that's... Uh, Whatever it is, but you know, it, it makes a lot of sense, especially when you have Formula One people traveling around the globe and hopping all over the place, especially in this world that we've seen over the last uh, two months with Omicron and how you know transmissible in the short incubation period that uh, you have. So, I guess it, it's it's something that just makes sense. And uh, sure, I mean, if you're going to make it uh, mandatory for one group of people in the paddock, just make it across the board and just make it mandatory for everybody. Yeah, I'll I'll just shout out uh, a personal update for everybody. I got my booster a couple of weeks ago, so still waiting I was, uh, for mine. AstraZeneca. <laughs> yeah, I can't believe that, man. Yeah, I was AstraZeneca, AstraZeneca. I got Moderna this time. Yeah, had some pretty weird, lucid dreams that first night, but that was about the end of it. Another thing that had been reported. <laughs> okay, are you well, sure this is up? from the, the your booster shot? Or <laughs> okay, <laughs> I don't even know. But uh, there, there was also a report, and I haven't seen yeah. them yet. And I, I don't know if they've been released, but of the 19 drivers on the grid last year that will be racing in 2022 
all of them participated in a get vaccinated video that's going to be part of a campaign that's going to be released next year. And okay. I would just add as well that, you know, I, I get where you're coming from that you and I, obviously I, I'm vaccinated. So are you. Yep. I, I feel the same way about, you know, forcing vaccination on folks. But I think in the context of Formula One and really in the context of society, everyone should be because it's the right thing to do. But in the Formula One world, this is strictly business. You, you can't afford. And again, I get it that somebody that's been vaccinated can still can still transmit the disease to somebody mm-hmm. else. They yep. can transmit COVID-19, but the reality is it's probably less likely and they're less likely to develop severe symptoms and all those other kind of things. And if you talk about F1 being this mega business that is traveling to 23 global destinations next year, if you can eliminate a variable that is somebody that's unvaccinated in the paddock, well, that reduces a potential, well, one health and safety risk, but also a financial risk because you don't want to risk getting a key engineer or a key mechanic or God forbid, a driver from picking up COVID in the paddock from somebody that's not vaccinated. Like I just, I don't think it makes sense not to mandate this in that world. And again, I've I've deeply unsettled feelings about this topic in general, even though I'm super pro vaccination and I get I get the perspective, but it just makes total sense that you can't afford to be traveling to 23 global destinations, not mm-hmm. here, not mandate that everyone in the paddock gets it. And I think that's not asking a lot from the people that are blessed enough to be a part of that community and a part of that ecosystem. Do you think that they consulted uh, Helmut Marko on this one who uh, wanted to have like a basically a COVID party in the, <laughs> the early days of the pandemic? Isn't that what he wanted? That he wanted yeah, his drivers exactly. to get COVID uh, like way back in the early days when we didn't really know what it was and how contagious or serious it was. He wanted to, to be pursue, fair. You know, I think now most drivers have had it, right? Like if you oh, so many the of list, them had. Yeah. yeah. Lance. Lewis, Lewis, Sergio, yeah. uh, Lando, Gasly, mm-hmm. Charles Leclerc, I think a couple of times. Like I, I would think that at least half the grid has had it now. And not because they're not vaccinated, because they are, and not because they're not doing unhealthy things. But again, it's just the byproduct of being a part of the global community and traveling as much as they do. Yeah, well, just, uh, you know, uh, on that note, just be uh, suspicious if you get a phone call from Helmut Marco uh, asking if you want to go around to his place for a sleepover <laughs> yeah, on the weekend. <laughs> and know. he locks the door behind you as you go in. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Anyways, on that cheery note, let's take one final break. and We'll be back in just a moment, so don't go away. All right. Well, welcome back to the program. And let's finally talk about some other fun things. And uh, we, we were talking, I think it was just last week, uh, about uh, these, uh, you know, that 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 uh, that number, that 40 venue or 40 city potential race host number that, uh, that uh, F1 was flexing on a year or two ago. But apparently Morocco is uh, now being uh, uh, toited as a possible candidate to host a Formula One uh, race in the future. And uh, th- this is an interesting one. So I, I don't know if there's uh, anything uh, from this at all, but um, Formula One CEO Stefano Domenicali said uh, that the, they do want to hold a Grand Prix event in Africa. And then Domenicali had to say, quote, we have requests from Africa. We were just uh, discussing with South Africa and a country in North Africa, as well as two from the Far East. Um, and what else do you have to say? Well, that that was it. Uh, sorry, <laughs> a bit of a short quote. But, you know, that's interesting. I mean, South Africa, I don't think is a surprise because uh, that was uh, kind of popped up in the news uh, a little while ago. Um, in North Africa, yeah, that would be a bit of a surprise uh, that, you know, if they would, uh, you know, have a, a race there at all. I mean, uh, you know, I mean, especially 
I mean, they did have a race at Casablanca way back in uh, 1925. And that was uh, the last time they had a race there was in 1958. So, I mean, it's been a long, long time. So, I mean, there's some obviously cool uh, historic uh, connections there. Um, the, the two in the Far East. Now, I wonder where that uh, possibly uh, could be. Could we see another race in China? I don't know, Malaysia again? Those seem to be the, the, the two that can pop immediately to mind. I mean, we got Singapore online. We've got uh, Japan. I mean, Japan's been on the schedule for eons. And even Singapore has been a, a long-term uh, you know staple on the F1 calendar. So I, I don't know. I mean, I'm just, uh, you know, purely pulling things out of the air here but i mean another race in china and uh, and or malaysia or perhaps somewhere else i mean those seem like the the obvious ones unless vietnam is a thing again because that was a bit of a disappointing one to lose we were so close to vietnam and i i don't think we have time to get into it now but a political scandal in that country basically yeah. cost them the ability to host a race but it is interesting to think about who these two other kind of East Asian destinations could be. It certainly wouldn't be another race in Japan. I, I think we'll all be thankful when we can get back to Japan. I think we'll be excited when we get back to Singapore. But Malaysia had a great track and we've seen some great races there. So maybe it's there. And to your point, maybe it's a separate race in the in the PRC because mm-hmm. maybe they want to build on the excitement of having a Chinese driver in the series. But to get back to Morocco, India, I mean, I would India as well count that- as far east or is that more, I mean, that's more like South Asia, right? Right? I mean, there, there's so many candidates just in that general geographic reason, and region, right? And, and Korea, maybe we yeah. Take another stab at Korea. Who knows, but, right? Uh, Morocco, by the way, and I, this was every week we take turns putting together the agenda for the show. Mm-hmm. And so this week I sourced the story, by the way, from the reputable MoroccoWorldNews.com website and Wikipedia for everybody listening at home. Wikipedia describes, Wikipedia describes, the country of Morocco as a unitary parliamentary semi-constitutional monarchy of 38 or sorry, 37.1 million people. And it is a developing country immediately due south of Spain across the ocean body. So it's an interesting country. And of course, there's some sex appeal there. The expectation is that the race would be held at a new track at Casablanca. Mm -hmm. Pretty cool. But I think anytime a sport's getting a lot of love and is getting a lot of shine, there's always excitement and people that want to get involved. And we saw this with the NBA in the 90s when there was rapid expansion and everyone wanted an expansion team and everyone wanted an NFL expansion team and everyone wanted to be a Major League Baseball expansion team. And all these cities would align up and they'd say, hey, we're going to create a council or a committee and they're going to explore getting a stadium financing package together. So F1's got a lot of shine right now. And I think there's probably countless places that are lining up to to sign a deal to bring Formula One there. I think I would obviously love to see Formula One return to South Africa for Mm -hmm. countless reasons, just because there's, there's some heritage there. And I think it would be great for that country to to have something like this now, especially if it could be made and put together in a way that doesn't detract from the economy and doesn't rely on a ton of taxpayer money and is maybe privately financed, I think it would be very cool to go back to South Africa. You know, somewhere in a deep, dark underground lair full of uh, Bond villains that uh, organize races in some of these dodgier locations around the globe are thinking, oh, you guys weren't too happy with some of the places we've been recently. Let's see how they react when we announce we're going to North Korea. But <laughs> <laughs> And by the way, it's... It's not a cave network. It is a volcano. No, there we go. It is a very... 
that is guarded by sharks with freaking laser beams. Let's just be very clear. You, you know, out of all the Bond-esque kind of villains, I, I would suspect that if anybody was running the evil Formula One empire, it would be, probably be somebody like uh, Dr. Evil. You know, slightly evil and not completely competent either. So. Would Bernie be Dr. Evil's mini-me? Would mini-me be no. Bernie? <laughs> probably. Again, we are, we are not paid directly or indirectly by Formula One, so we can have these And really we never will be after this. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, I think that opportunity's long past. It's it's long past. Uh, anyway, so let's go on to the next one. We we briefly touched about on this uh, a little bit earlier. I'm going to let uh, you uh, take this one because uh, this is going back to the whole um, the the whole ongoing and ever changing story about Honda and where they're going to be and how they're going to be involved in, in in Formula One because it seems to twist and turn and. It, it it just it, it it morphs all the time, and I'm not really too sure where it even stands nowadays. It's it's and crazy. We we almost need to go back to the McLaren days, and way back in the 80s and the early 90s, McLaren and Honda had a, a phenomenally successful relationship. Honda left the sport. They came yeah. back in the early 2000s. At one point, prior to the global recession, they had two teams, and they ended up selling their B team, and they ended up selling their A team, which became Braun to Braun. And of course, Ross Braun sold that, sold that on to Mercedes, and it became the current Mercedes team, and they left the sport. And then they came back in 2015 to an ill-fated relationship with McLaren, and then they moved to Red Bull AlphaTauri, and that was enormously successful. But the board at Honda in Tokyo decided they wanted to exit the sport and we all expected that they would be completely done and out of the sport by the beginning of 2023 when they'd stop supplying power units to Red Bull but now all of a sudden they're going to continue to build and supply Red Bull with power units right through 2025 and now Honda's motorsport boss Masashi Yamamoto believes the Japanese manufacturer could and will return to F1 at some point in the future and this is an article that was written for F1.com by Lawrence Barreto, but he says, personally, I hope and expect Honda will come back to Formula One, he told F1.com. It depends on young people in Honda being passionate about motorsport and if they can convince senior management to come back. But history repeats, so I hope it can happen. And the article continues, Honda, who won six constructors and five drivers championships with Williams and McLaren as an engine supplier in the 80s and 90s, have come an awfully long way since making a difficult return with McLaren in 2015. And I quote, they didn't get a podium until their fifth year with Verstappen taking third in the first race of the Red Bull and Honda partnership, but then went on to score 17 race wins, 16 with Red Bull, one with AlphaTauri, and three seasons ending with Verstappen's world title win. So hope springs eternal. I, I think they're obviously a, a great pairing with Formula One. They have a really great legacy with the sport. It was hugely, hugely unfortunate that the board chose to leave. Now we know as well that it was a hugely divisive issue within Honda and it was an even split on the board with whether they should stay or whether they should go. Honda, a company that's pursuing a true fully electrified fleet rapidly, obviously didn't see a fit with F1 that continues to lean into internal combustion engines and will continue to do so for some time. Obviously didn't feel it was a great fit, but I have to wonder that if that decision wasn't at the end of 2020, if it was in 2021 in September, October, in the throes of a world driver's championship, would they have walked away? Because what blows my mind now is they will continue 
supplying power units to Red Bull without branding on the unit for the next four years. Now, they're going to be paid, so they're not giving these engines to Red Bull. Red Bull will be paying for these engines as a customer should, but it's crazy that they will be providing power units for a team that presumably will be contending for championships without getting any of the marketing exposure or any of the marketing benefits. It's mind-boggling. You know what? I'll be completely honest. As as soon as you uh, talked about uh, or mentioned the historical tie-in between Honda and uh, McLaren back in the 1980s, I completely tuned you out for the rest of uh, your little speech there, by and large, because... You know, every time I think back on that era, you know, I just uh, I, I just think immediately about the McLaren MP4-4, which, uh, you know, if you're new to Formula One, do yourself a favor, go search it up on YouTube, go and look at any of these uh, classic uh, Formula One races. If you've got uh, access to the F1 TV Pro uh, archives, go back and uh, watch any races in 1988, because as far as I'm concerned, the, the McLaren MP4-4 is perfection. I think it's the most beautiful Formula One car ever uh, designed. It was absolutely dominant on the track. And I have to give, um, you know, shout outs uh, to the the MP4-5 and the MP4-6. So this is their 88, 89, and 90 cars. Just absolutely beautiful. And that that combination of the McLaren with Honda Power in the back, it was just uh, absolutely, um, it, it, was, it was phenomenal. It was absolutely uh, fantastic. And a, a little bit of trivia, the MP for McLaren actually Actually stands for Marlboro Project 4-4, you know, it's just like, how could you tell where Ron Dennis was getting his sponsorship for from? But I mean, you know, all that aside, I mean, those are just absolutely gorgeous cars. And when you hear those, uh, th- those engines at the back of them, my God, that just the scream of those uh, turbo engines is just, uh, oh, it, if, if that doesn't get you excited about Formula One, nothing ever will. I just think Honda's involvement in in Formula One was so beneficial to their car lineup. And you look at the absolute quantum leap that Honda took as a road car builder in the late 80s and the early 90s. And you saw the rapid development of their cars. So much of what was the Acura NSX that was made famous by Ayrton Senna Mm -hmm. driving it and posing with it. And you saw the development of their power units, like the variable valve timing that defined the Evitec-based engines that Honda flexed all over the 90s and the 2000s. They were all derived from Formula One technology that no road car manufacturer maybe benefited more more from their trickle-down approach mm-hmm. to F1 technology development than Honda. So not to say that that's happening now or that it even needs to happen, but you know, Formula One was hugely beneficial to Honda as a, as a road car manufacturer. You know, you look back to the early 80s, Honda wasn't held in the same regard that it is now. Its association with Formula One and Formula One championships really helped define and legitimize them as a road car builder. And then likewise, they took so much of the the technology that was developed for those Formula One cars and applied it to their road cars. So again, I think you and I both want Honda to be involved and we you know, it, it is uh, so much uh, fun to talk about. It's fun to reminisce about. And the, the, this next uh, story is interesting because this is a uh, Maserati is actually going into Formula E, which I find uh, extremely interesting considering the fact that so many other manufacturers have been pulling out of Formula E over the past uh, couple of years that it uh, almost seems like a, almost a little um counterintuitive that uh, they are but uh, they they obviously have their their uh, their their reasons for doing so and uh, that that's a big win obviously for formula e to get such a well-known mark like maserati into the sport 
Yeah, this is this is huge for Formula E. And I think two years ago, there was a lot of excitement and energy in the paddocks and in the world of Formula E because they had done such a great job of attracting manufacturers. Audi was involved and Mercedes was involved and BMW was involved. And then in rapid order, BMW announced they were leaving. And I think it was largely because they were frustrated with the limitations of being able to develop that car that, hey, we wanted to develop things in this car that we could pass down to our road car divisions. But the, the regulations and the controls on the development of those cars is so tight that BMW is like, we can't learn anything here. And then Audi left and then Mercedes announced that they're going to leave at the end of this year. So you're seeing all these big OEMs depart the sport. So I think it's great for, I think it's great for Formula E. I think it helped legitimizes the sport, but I also think it's great for Maserati as well because it helps provide some exposure to them. Now, I think the casual Formula E consumer probably isn't shopping for a Maserati period, <laughs> but it certainly brings them to the forefront of the public conscience in a way that we don't think of Maserati today. Certainly, we think about Ferrari as a performance division and Porsche as a performance division and McLaren as a performance division. Maserati is something of a awkward, underdeveloped grand tourer, and maybe this will help to change the public's perception of that brand. Yeah, totally. Hey, let's uh, finish off the show now with uh, something that's going to be a lot of fun uh, to talk about. But 50% of the Formula One grid, so 10 drivers, have contracts that are going to expire at the end of this year. So let's go down the list. Sergio Perez, Fernando Alonso, Carlos Sainz, Sebastian Vettel, Vettel pardon me, Yuki Sonoda, Pierre Gasly, Mick Schumacher, Guan Yu Zhou, uh, Nicholas Latifi, and Alex Albon. Now, that is a, that's a very, very big list when you have 10 of the 20 drivers up for, uh, you know, con or the contracts are up at the end of the year. Now, the two obvious ones that I could see leaving the sport at the end of the year are Fernando Alonso and Sebastian Vettel. I mean, Vettel kind of has had, you know, one foot out the door one way or another. I mean, I think that's maybe, maybe perception more on my, uh, you know, my side than anything else. Fernando, I'm not really sure. I mean, whether he would be back or not, I think the big question is, is he giving more to Alpine than perhaps somebody else? And I guess the big question is, if both of those guys were to leave their respective teams in Alpine and Aston Martin, who would they replace them with? Uh, Sergio, I think, is an interesting one. I kind of see him a little bit as a kind of a, a Valtteri Bottas part two, for but for, for, for Red Bull. I think that, uh, you know, he obviously had his challenges at Red Bull last year, but I think uh, this year having a year under his belt and the fact that everybody's going to be getting to used to the new cars, I think if he has a good uh, a good season, I could maybe see another year uh, offered to him at the end of uh, 2022. Uh, basically, again, it's just like who in the Red Bull system would they want to bring into that team? Because you look at um, Alpha Tauri, uh, Yuki and Pierre both are out of contract at the end of the year. Do you want to bring one of those guys into the main team? I mean, is has that boat has that ship sailed for Pierre? That's that's a great question. What do you think? Yeah, I think this is really fascinating. And I think one of my favorite parts of the NBA season, for instance, is free agency. I think a lot of the NBA fan community spends more time speculating and talking about free agency and the moves that teams have to make to position themselves yep. for free agency and the length of contracts and whether players sign up with a a, a, a friend or bring other talent with them. I think the NBA is a lot of fun in that way, but this is also pretty intriguing as well that you look at the fact that half the grid is going to be out of contract at the end of 2022. 
both of the Alpha Tauri drivers, Yuki and Pierre, you got to think Pierre will probably find a ride somewhere regardless of what the season looks like. Yuki, that's a big question mm-hmm. mark. You look at Williams there as a team, they're in a really great position because both Nicholas Latifi and Alex Albon will be out of contract at the end of 2022. And I think Williams is in a great position because if they're not comfortable with their development or their performance, well, hey, look, you know, we're not obligated to retain these drivers beyond this mm-hmm. season. So there's a lot of team control there. And Mick and, and Guanyo Zhu and Sebastian Vettel and Carlos Sainz, Fernando Alonso, Sergio Perez, I think a lot of those folks are are pretty are pretty set. Sebastian Vettel, I think you make a great point there. I think that's an interesting one, and it's going to be really interesting to see how he performs this year and whether he's motivated to return if he does have a good year based on the progress and the development of that Aston Martin, mm-hmm. especially with Otmar gone and the fact that there's obviously some structural change happening within that team. Fernando, I, I heard an interview with him a couple of days ago. He's very clear that he has every objective of being in Formula One for at least two more years. So I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. So I think Alpine, which is also in a bit of structural disarray, and they're going through their annual complete restructuring <laughs> of the team. I think he's kind of be the stability and the backbone of that organization for a couple of years. And I think he also recognizes that he was blessed to come back to Formula One on his terms. So I think he's going to ride this uh, ride this ship as long as, as he possibly can. I think you're right that I think Red Bull has found a perfect, uh, perfect match to pair with with Max Verstappen, and I think they're going to do whatever they can to keep him there. But Yuki, Nicholas, Al, uh, Alex, I don't know, Mick, I think Mick's got to show some development this year. And I think he got a bit of a, I don't want to say he got a free ride last year. He was stable and consistent mm-hmm. as a driver in possibly the worst car in the grid. Yeah. But presumably the Haas is going to be more competitive this year. And it will help to demonstrate or highlight what his real capabilities are. And hopefully he'll see some more personal growth. But there could be some real changes next year. And there could be some surprises as well with drivers under contract we see f1 driver contracts torn up all the time oh, yeah, yeah. sergio was in the middle of a three-year deal with racing point when that deal got torn yeah up. well exactly and I, I think if you're pierre gasly you're probably rubbing your hands with glee thinking that you know if my deal's up at the end of the year that uh, there's plenty of potential uh, landing spots uh, out there with some pretty good teams i mean let, let, let's just be honest i mean carlos Sainz, unless he has a complete stinker of a season i expect him to to get another offer from ferrari i think he had a very very solid year in 21 and uh, i i think he, he's just a, a good fit with the team i think he's good in the car i think he's good with the with, with charles but i can't help uh, but thinking if you're, you're pierre gasly i i just can't help but think that getting out of that red bull organization just might be the boost that your career needs just to get those shackles off of you make a clean break and, and leave on your own terms and, and go somewhere else i mean who, who knows where that might be, but I mean, if, um, say, Vettel d- decides to call it a career and, and walk away, maybe Aston Martin's uh, something that, uh, that that would be very attractive uh, to Pierre. Maybe even Williams, if they, they can turn it around and they can make some uh, more progress. I mean, there certainly, I, I think, are some very, very intriguing storylines and some, you know, some, some big moves that could happen this year. It just uh, And of course, if uh, Lewis decides to pull the pin and walk away, which would be an absolute bombshell, I mean, just, uh, you know, th- that could, you know, start a, a, a literal avalanche of driver moves because, Absolutely. you know, every, you know, 19 other guys are w- going to want to get uh, Lewis's car. And, <laughs> you know, we could see some shockers there. And just depending what happened, if he went there or if uh, Lewis was to, to to leave, I mean, who who knows what other repercussions it would have up and down the grid. 
All right. Well, what do you think, sir? A- anything else uh, that we want to, to talk about tonight? We got any tweets? We're doing good here. We're in a little bit under time. Yeah, I think we can give a couple of quick updates sure. just in general. I, I wanted to announce that next Thursday, which I think would be the 21st of January, Matt Clark is going to join us for a Q&A session on spaces at 8 p.m. Yep. I think 8 p.m. And that's actually uh, January 20th. So 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 January yeah. 20th. Thank 8 you. 8 p.m. Pacific. Yeah, so, uh, Sorry, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Thank you for the clarification, <laughs> my friend. It's that time of night where I stop being able to tell the time. But yeah, Mac's going to join us. We're super excited yep. about this. We're going to do a Q&A. So if you've ever wanted to interface with a open-wheel driver that is on an IndyCar trajectory, this is a great opportunity. If you've heard our interview with him from a couple of weeks ago, you know he's an incredibly bright, articulate kid, super polite. We're going to be talking about everything from tire management to building a simulator for home use. We're super, super excited about yeah, that. It's going to be We've awesome. We've also got some great shows coming up. We're going to have Tim Rainy on again soon. It's been quite a while, I think, since we've had him on the show. Talk to Matt Sakaris tonight. We're going to be bringing him on. He's obviously a favorite for those of you in Canada, the Pacific Northwest. He's going to be joining us again, probably February as we get amped up for the season. Um, and we also have our NASCAR show, which we hope to finally get into the books. Although I think you and I both need to sit down and actually watch a NASCAR race so we can go into it with some perception of what's happening out there on the oval or triangle. I think it's an oval, a square. I don't Really I'll watch Talladega yet. Nights again this week, so I'm completely ready to go <laughs> when we do the NASCAR one. Did, did you watch it? No, I haven't watched it in a long time, but okay. uh, you so watched it again watched not so long ago, right? Yeah. Yeah, I watched it in September, and it does not age particularly well. <laughs> there is an awful... So it was... Don't get me wrong. It was funny, and I think it's a well-crafted movie. It's clearly big budget, but a lot of the humor... Probably should have stayed in 2006 <laughs> work in 2021. So there's all these movies that from my youth I really enjoyed. And when I go back and watch them, I'm just like, I'm a little uncomfortable. Like we actually watched that with my <laughs> wife and with our son's godmother. And I was so excited. You got to see this movie. It's so great. And I'm sitting there like sweating during some of the, the comedic scenes because I'm like, this does not play well with a younger just, crowd just, in 2021. Just tell me you didn't sort of follow that up with the Sasha Baron Cohen marathon and followed up with like a double head over the Borat movies because... No, 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 <laughs> You're probably no. never calling movie night My ever again. My wife will have nothing to do with the boring. Yeah, movie. I'm sure. I'm sure. Anyways, on that, I guess this is a good time to, to sign off until our subsequent podcast episode next week. Um, you know, uh, well, I shouldn't make Borat jokes. Uh, I'm not particularly funny at the best of times, but uh, anyways, <laughs> <laughs> thank you all very much uh, for downloading and listening to the show. Thank you to all of you in the live chat on the YouTube live stream uh, tonight. Appreciate you all hanging out. And uh, of course, uh, looking forward to the Spaces chat with Mac next week. That's going to be a, a lot of fun. Anyways, if you want to get in touch, uh, by all means, uh, do so. Send us a tweet at f one pod Send us an email at scooteriaf1pod at gmail.com. We'll do an email and Twitter show very, very soon. But uh, the, the mailbag is bursting at the seams and that's it. On behalf of myself and Mr. H, have a great day, have a great weekend, have fun, take care, and we'll talk to you guys soon. Bye for now.